Hello, my name's Gary, and this is episode 47 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On today's show, we'll be talking about the future with Theo Priestley. Before we get started, I wanted to ask you, hopefully everyone who has tickets has been informed that the fully charged live show in Farnborough this year has been delayed until 2021. This is obviously disappointing, but it is the best decision given the times we're living in at the moment. The new dates are now the 18th, 19th and 20th of June 2021, and it's still at Farnborough. Our feature topic today is the future, especially when it comes to EVs, renewables and what we can expect over the short, medium and long term. I'm joined today by Theo Priestley. Theo is a futurist, author and associate fellow of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change on Technology and Public Policy. His work has been featured in numerous publications, including Forbes, Wired, The Times Raconteur, VentureBeat, and he's been interviewed for BBC Radio and UK National Television News on emerging and future technology trends. He also organised a TEDx session in Edinburgh a few years ago and is the host of the We Didn't Start the Fire podcast, which is billed as a series at the intersection of technology, business and society. Of course, I wanted to know what a futurist actually is. There are many, many different um, uh, takes on what a futurist is. For myself, I like to research uh, emerging trends and technologies, and, uh, whether it's in business or society, uh, how these impact society, and then take a more pragmatic view. So a lot of futurists like uh, Ray Kurzweil, some of the more pop culture ones, um, Peter Diamantis, for example, they um, wax lyrical on a lot of the things like um, uh, the singularity, uh, connecting man and machine together, um, augmented and re virtual reality. So we're all going to be walking around with headsets on and experiencing various la layers of alternate reality on top of real life. And then I kind of sort of look at the more pragmatic side of things and think, right, well, what is the person in the street really going to want from this? For me, I try to project forward uh, what the person on the street, what society really wants from the future, whether it's better government services, whether it's better connected services, um, whether it's better connected healthcare, I think it's really important to, when we sit down and think about the future, is what are the real world use cases? What are, what's the real world benefit that everybody can expect from this? Not from the, the niche people who either work in the industry or have the money to burn. Um, so for me as a, a futurist, I look to the future. I look to see what's plausible, what's possible, you know, what can be achieved in the future. And then I put a pragmatic hat on and then start making a cull and saying, well, that's nobody wants that. And that's not achievable with the technology that we have today. And it might not be achievable in the technology that we have in 10 years time. So nobody really cares. So if we're looking at someone who likes to see where things are in the future, let's talk about big oil. Obviously, they say they're going carbon neutral. Can you see them moving beyond the whole, you know, maybe we'll try and keep our carbon footprint as small as possible while still being a fossil fuel company? Um, so uh, having worked for uh, an IoT company that its major, um, its main revenue stream was um, in the energy industry and especially in oil and gas, you get close to a lot of the news articles and, and press announcements that uh, not, uh, the normal populace don't see because there's no interest in it. 
Um, and it struck me as interesting because the uh, amount of existing fields that are being expanded and the amount of new fields that are still being explored and uh, implemented in a sense um, is staggering. And it shows you that the level of investment from the oil company is still heavily invested, is still heavily slanted towards fossil fuels. Um, and I think someone did a calculation as well um, when the whole sort of um, Greta Thunberg and there was a lot of interest there in what she was doing um, and Greenpeace and everything else. Um, we're coming out with figures which were almost like, you know, well, yeah, you've stated that you're moving towards wind and alternate energy, but your investment in there is, is almost like 5% of your revenue versus 95% that goes into oil. Hmm. Um, so... Although, you know, from a, a living world perspective and pragmatic and societal, you know, we're going to see big oil around for decades to come. The fact is, is that their transition is extremely slow, you know, um, to alternate uh, energy sources uh, for, for production, for, for investment. Um, so that's not happening fast enough. The other thing that it's always struck me as odd is that the the whole climate change initiative and carbon footprint thing has become nothing more than a footnote on your balance sheet. So we are trading carbon um, taxes and things like that um, as just a, an item number on a balance sheet that has a value attached to it. it. You cannot take any statement from a company that drills for oil um, at face value when they say, oh, we intend to be carbon neutral or carbon negative by um, you know, 2035 or something like that. It's just impossible for a, a company that generates that amount of um, revenue from old fossil fuels um, to just buy their way out of um, uh, the, the carbon situation uh, and be carbon neutral that way. Um, it's like airlines basically saying, oh, we're all carbon neutral, but you look up in the sky and you can see contrails and you just think, no, that's not how it works. You don't pay five million and just say we're carbon neutral when there's shit happening in the atmosphere. So, you know, it, it, but people seem to have that, 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 that idea that if I pay enough money, um, I've offset my emission, you know, to, to the planet. And it doesn't work that way. So, no, we shouldn't take it at face value. We should absolutely question everything that is being said. Um, we as society and as as independent people and intelligent people should actually want to know a bit more detail as well so it's almost the onus is, is almost on us to call it out and call it out with facts not just with rage so you know we can the, the information is all publicly available so you know if we look at their balance sheets and say well you paid this much in carbon tax but you generated this much in revenue and your investment in wind is negligible for example or, or research into alternate energy sources is, is negligible then how can your statements hold any value for me so therefore you know i will do something about it on my side which is maybe not use your products anymore um, mm -hmm. but big oil knows that we have to come to them i mean plastics industry relies on um derivatives from uh, fossil fuels etc so you know we are kind of stuck with oil for a long time and fossil okay. fuels. That's interesting. So obviously, if big oil is to continue not really being carbon neutral or green, this will have unintended consequences for things like charging. We already have Shell and BP in the charging scene. 
But as long as fossil fuels are their prime motivator, the investments will never be as big as it needs to be. If we're to try and get the country to no fossil fuel vehicles by 2035, what needs to happen there, Theo? Sure. I mean, 15 years time is it's it's a short window. I mean, let's put it that way. Um, plus, as we know, every four years we recycle governments. Um, and so someone can have uh, an equally wonderful idea that could completely put a kibosh on these plans anyway. Um, the first thing we have to think about is infrastructure. So do we have the grid infrastructure to support everyone moving to EVs? Even if everyone did all at once or over the 15 years, we managed to get everyone in the country to move to an EV. So we have to start thinking about grid infrastructure and also the infrastructure, like I said before, to support everyone moving and not everyone has a house, so they can't put a charging infrastructure um, at the side of the house or whether or not there's uh, enough space in the streets for these kind of things. And we have to start thinking about the cars that are on the road. So, I mean, I myself, I drive a 15-year-old car um, and it's petrol um, and it's purely from a, a financial point of view. Um, you know, and I, you know, I look, again, from a pragmatic point of view to say, how can we put people who are in a, a much less fortunate position than I'm in to EV, uh, whether they drive or not? You know, there's a lot of 10-year-old and, uh, and older cars on the road. So I know we're talking about brand new cars, but we have to start thinking about the amount of cars that are on the road that the old infrastructure is going to continue to support for a long time. And I, don't, and I think this is the thing that people forget about. So no new diesel cars or no new petrol cars in 2035. Fine, that's great. Unfortunately, you have uh, decades and of entrenched values towards people's buying habits and the secondhand market to what they can afford, um, which means that the oil industry is going to continue to support older vehicles for a very long time. And I think in people's head, the way things are, the way the communication and the way that the messages are coming across, it's almost like after 2035, the world of place, there's not going to be any um, uh, petrol vehicles or diesel vehicles and the ozone layer is going to repair itself and climate change is no longer a factor. You know, the, the oil industry is probably laughing right now because they know fine that they're safe. They're safe for decades to come. Um, and I know they're on a downturn just now, but you know, they, it's, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting situation that we're living in where I think, and it's not a, it's not a slight on people's understanding, but there is a general ignorance of the amount of factors that are at play here. Let's assume then that we're transitioning off fossil fuels. There has to be something to replace it. What, what do you think the technologies are going to be? I see wind, predominantly wind and solar. Um, as the renewable technologies uh, leading the field, certainly in the future. Um, you can see the patterns by obviously what companies like um, Tesla have produced with the solar tiles, but also just with the investments, even though they're meager at the moment, um, the investments from the uh, big oil companies moving into offshore wind to generate electricity for for land. Um, uh, land. and uh, oh, what's it called now? It's the one where the OTEC, that's it. So Ocean Technologies, um, not so much um, Tidal, but certainly OTEC where they use a differential, differential in uh, ocean current temperatures to generate electricity from um, a floating barge and then pump that to land. I think that might be quite crucial for uh, small island communities, especially if wind power is actually going to be a uh, expensive proposition 
shall we say, a lot of the island communities, especially in the Caribbean, still rely on diesel generators. And those are the uh, the types of communities that we need to start offering alternate um, fuel um, and alternate um, renewable energy sources too, I think, because they're the ones that are going to be left behind um, and everybody should be sharing certainly than the successes of these um, of the technology that we uh, that, that we're bringing forward if we're in the situation where we have more and more renewables uh, by definition there's going to be fewer and fewer roles for people in the non-renewable en- industries such as coal miners oil drillers etc what do you see as the unintended consequences of that every industry that goes und- undergoes um, transition um, is going to have casualties unfortunately i mean if you look at the banking industry for example you know the, the whole clo- bank closures of branches because nobody goes into a branch anymore because it's very sort of generationally focused or if it's business-led um the, the the rise of so-called challenger banks who who take away a lot of the younger generation um from traditional banks because they have a slicker way of uh, opening processes for example um, and they're, and because they're all online, they def- therefore don't need bricks and mortar. They don't need people uh, physically available on branch networks to, to support them. Um, and therefore, the bigger banks uh, want to move the same way, which is more nimbler, more agile. Um, and therefore, there are casualties there. And then what do they do? They make redundancies, but you don't see them retraining them. Um, you don't. In fact, it's a... Uh, it's, a, it's almost an intended consequence that redundancies don't actually come with any um, retraining packages as part of a redundancy package. Um, and, and I'm thinking this through just now because I'm just, just having this thought at the moment, is that if we see the same kind of thing with the coal industry where there are mass, redu- you know, mass redundancies because the coal industry is being turned on its head and say gravity takes off, for example, um, you want, you're not going to need the same level of skill or the same type of skill as you did when you operated a coal mine. Um, so therefore, if you make those redu- uh, redundancies, are you duty bound or morally bound to retrain an entire workforce to find jobs elsewhere? The answer is probably no. Um, did we ever see that when uh, there was the minor strike and everything else? Um, no. Will we see that again when there's, um, you know, maybe mass redundancies in call centers when there's more higher automation and higher levels of, um, you know, machine learning intelligence applied to take calls and answer calls and things like that? You know, no, they probably won't be there. I th- you know, it's it's part of society where people are made redundant and then they're f- left to fend on their own. So it's not really an unintended consequence. It's, it's a fairly known consequence and it's fairly cyclical now in you know, across different industries. Plastics and big oil, I mean, for sure, big oil's grip on, on obviously fossil fuels, they will try to reposition their main product and their main source of revenue as something that can benefit other industries, whether it's uh, plastics, whether it's other petrochemical industries, whether it's uh, pharmaceutical, for example. Um, they will not give up on their main product um, instantly. We, in our lifetime, we will probably never see this transition either um, happen. Um, so again, we have to be very mindful of the length of time involved here uh, and the time scales that we are talking about. Um, it's not going to be ten years. Um, 
maybe in the next 50 years, we will see a very slow, uh, gradual transition, which will culminate into something big that future generations will take advantage of and actually enjoy the benefits of. But unfortunately, we're going to have to bear the pain of that. And so will a lot of other people who are working in these industries. One big bugbear that a lot of EV drivers have at the moment is the fact that they need to have numerous apps, cards and accounts to pay for their charging. Octopus Energy have recently introduced a pilot scheme where you can add the cost of fueling onto your electricity bill. Is this something you can see taking off? It's interesting that you ask that because... Um... I think being put into um, a utility bill like electricity is is the first step. I think going forward, it may just become just another tax, a bit like your council tax, where it is just actually automatically deducted um, or added to your um, local authority bill as basically the majority of that population moves towards it. So it may be that you you know when you take up a new property or take up a property and they say. One of the questions that we'll ask in the future is, um, do you have an electric vehicle? And if so, then uh, you will just be taxed um, rather than uh, by um, the amount of electricity you use because um, a lot of you are using fixed amounts at some point. So, um, yes, I think in the short term, it will probably be added to directly onto your electricity bill or, or some other bill. Um, you know, I could probably see a comp- tel- uh, telephone companies like Vodafone um, doing things like this, to be honest, where you just charge onto onto a, a telecoms bill. But yeah, I see it happening. Um, I see it being charged as a convenience or a utility in the future, um, just to make it easier for people to actually shift. Now, Theo, looking through your uh, Twitter stream, I see you're something of a critic of Elon Musk. Why is that? Do you just not like the guy? If you look at his statements on social media and, and some of the things that he does, um, I don't agree with. Um, I mean, if you, you have to understand that he commands a huge audience. And not only that, but a lot of it is um, almost cultish in behavior. People, will th- people would quite happily throw themselves in front of a Cybertruck for this guy. And when he comes out with statements about, you know, COVID, for example, and just open up America, or I'm moving my uh, operations elsewhere, or uh, and people take at its face value that because he's an intelligent man and because he's a billionaire, he knows what he's talking about. Um, you know, and frankly, I don't think he possesses a level of common sense where he just steps back before he hits send on a keyboard and, and thinks about what he's saying and the impact that he's going to say. The other things as well, I mean, if you look at, Hyperloop and the, the boring company and things like that, they haven't really delivered anything on the visions that he claimed to profess and, uh, and, um, uh, and want to deliver. I mean, the boring company, for example, this whole automated tunnel and blah, 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 just turned out to be just another tunnel. Um, uh, Hyperloop, I think, has just disappeared from memory for a lot of people. Um, although he... You know, he gets around it by saying, oh, I had the dream, um, I'm open sourcing the dream, so it's up to everyone else to deliver. Um, yes and no. Um, I think it, it's still ultimately his responsibility to, to help build those kind of sort of dreams. And I think that's a great point to finish. My thanks to Theo for his time. If you want to contact him, he is at T. 
PRSTLY on Twitter. There's a link to his profile in the show notes. I would also recommend listening to his podcast, We Didn't Start the Fire, which connects his passion for the future with esoteric things such as the Alien franchise and developing video games and world building. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Britain's largest solar farm is about to be approved. As you know, we're big fans of renewable energy here on the podcast, and anything that can increase the amount of renewable energy going into the grid is a big win in our eyes. So we were very happy to see that a £450 million solar farm in Faversham, Kent, is about to get approved. The farm has 880,000 solar panels, and it will produce enough energy to power 91,000 homes. And for those who like the technical numbers, it's anticipated to have around 350 megawatts of capacity and is expected to be online in 2023. For more info, follow the link in the show notes. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I'm the real Gary C on Twitter or use the EV Musings Twitter account, Musings EV. If you wanted a quick reference book to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Got an Electric. It's available on Amazon worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Links for everything I've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise our visibility and extend our reach in search engines. I have a feeling that nobody actually listens to this part of the podcast, which is a shame. And to prove this, I'm adding in a little something extra for this episode. If you get to this part of the podcast, please tweet the phrase... Tony Blair Institute for Global Change to me at Musings EV and the first one that appears on my timeline I'll contact and I will PayPal £10 to them. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, he doesn't let his daughter watch any of the Spongebob cartoons. It feels they're a bad influence. You have to understand that he commands a huge audience and not only that but a lot of it is um, almost cultish in behaviour. Thanks for listening. Bye.